Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of January 13th, 2020. On the shows today, the news and Disney releases some new hotel discounts. Plus, in our main segment, Jim shares some newly discovered details about Disney's never-built space pavilion in Epcot. Let's get started by bringing in the man who can relate to blenders because he also screams while doing his job. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? I am doing well, Lynn. And I'm, uh, speaking of screaming, just a little-known piece of, of Disney World trivia here. If you chant, I scream, you scream, we all scream for ice cream, 30 times in a row, the staff of Beaches and Cream is allowed to lob an ice cream scoop straight at your head without any professional repercussions. <laughs> well, that's interesting. The, uh, the laws in Osceola County are around assault with ice cream scoops. Very specific. Okay. Yeah, now, mind you, so again, just limit the chanting to 29, you know, rein it in, folks, because otherwise- Or fewer. No repercussions, <laughs> but a concussion. <laughs> All right. Jim, let's do a, a quick shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers Ian C., Carter B., and John R., and longtime subscribers Gary and Michelle, Ray K., and our good pal Brian H. These folks have been driving the Magic Kingdom's Main Street vehicles- since the park opened in 1971. They were kids back then, of course, but remember that child labor laws were a lot more relaxed back in those days. I'm also told that if you're a Florida resident, Brian H. will loan you the Main Street fire engine for the driving portion of your Florida driver's license test as well. True story. So they've been doing this for, for 49 years. You live in Florida a lot of the year, Len. You're, you're familiar with the, the concept of the Q-tip the yep. little white head you can only just see over the driver's seat. <laughs> yes, exactly. I'm a little concerned. You know, 49 oh, years they, at the they, wheel. You know, just oh. they, they started when they were young, Jim. It's fine. It's absolutely fine. What okay. could possibly go wrong? Okay. <laughs> There's a horn on those things, and it, it is <laughs> limited. It is, it is speed regulated to a few miles an hour. Okay. All right. I'm, I'm just going to stick on the curb for now. Okay. <laughs> he says, "Walk on the sidewalks, folks. Walk there on the sidewalks." Jim, every show should begin with a round of self congratulations. In our last show, we said that a free dining discount would be coming out for Walt Disney World, and it did. However, the dates are really limited. Two nights in June, three nights in July, and 11 nights in August and September, so just 16 nights total. Jim, what do you, what do you make of this? The 11 nights in August and September. These days, there is really no slow time at the Walt Disney World Resort. But if you're going to classify a particular time at the resort as slow that August to September window really does work. The other stuff, you know, to be honest, it, it almost feels like the token gesture, you know, to the effect of, you know, the, the two nights of June, three nights in July. Yeah. So it's June 27th and 28th, July 5th, 6th, and 7th. And that's it. That's, uh, that, that, those are really limited dates. The other thing is, is that you have to book this discount. You have to get your, um, get your deposit down. By January 16th, so this coming Thursday. So that makes me think this is just round one of a series of very targeted discounts. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be surprised to see like additional free dining, like how September 12th and September 16th for you, but like, you know, not the dates in between. Got it. The dates in June is the 27th and the 28th. Is that correct? Or? Yeah, just two nights. Okay. That's the weekend before 4th of July. And, and the other days are the days after 4th of July. So it's the week, it's the, the couple of days around the week of 4th of July. Mm -hmm. Interesting. We've seen Disney, what, the different pricing structures for, you know, if you're, you're willing to go, you know, midweek or to go to a, a park afternoon, you know, something like this to literally 
get people away from the 4th of July, which is, again, one of the busiest times for the resort, especially with the 4th this year falling on a Saturday. That means everyone's going to get the Friday off, which makes it a long weekend for everyone. So that makes sense. Yeah. So don't even bother to get on a plane to go to Orlando on that weekend. I mean, you won't make it out of the airport. (laughs) The the line line forms here. Yeah. So, wow. The other interesting thing is uh, Disney released a second discount. Mm Mm-hmm. With wider availability. This is a roomily discount up to 25% off Disney Deluxe Villas and Deluxe Resorts, 20% on the moderates, and 15% on the value resorts. Mm -hmm. It's valid uh, most days in uh, April, Mm -hmm. so the 1st through the 25th, and then also uh, April 26th through July 9th, and then July 10th to September 12th. So the discount goes for those three periods 10% in April. 15% 15% from April 26th to July 9th, and then 15% again through September 12th. The interesting thing about this discount is you've got about two weeks less to book it mm-hmm. than in past years. So I looked on uh, mousesavers.com. They've got a list of historical discounts, Every basically every discount that Disney re- released this decade, including the details and when the offer was released. Mm-hmm. Disney's cutting back on how long you've got to book these. So when you combine that with the free dining offer, mm-hmm. which has to be booked by this coming Thursday, mm-hmm. is it seems like Disney has this trend here of saying, here's a discount, it's super targeted, and mm-hmm. you don't have much time to think about it. If we're talking strictly lip service, you can say to your travel agent, look, we have made discounts available for your clients. It's the, the, the joke from the jerk, you know, to the effect of when you, you played the game at the carnival, go, anything from between the pencil and the eraser on the top shelf, those prizes, you can choose between you know, <laughs> just those. It, it makes me think that, the, uh, that this is, again, this is an initial set of discounts that rather than Disney keeping this room only discount out for, uh, you know, available for, you know, five months or whatever. Mm -hmm. They're basically allowing a contingency to say, if this discount doesn't work, Mm -hmm. we'll offer another one after that. That certainly makes sense. And going into the fall, as they start to march out their 50th anniversary promotional campaign, you have to wonder, given, you know, the number of people who will actually be go, whoa, you know, let me hold back. I want to do Cosmic Rewind. I want to do, you know. The oh, trundling. good point. Good point. So that's, so that's, that's interesting. So we, we, we must be hearing more information about that mm-hmm. after the second half of the year. Because if you look on the discounts, especially mm-hmm. the, the Romoli discount, like the, the discounts for July 10th through September 12th, mm-hmm. you've got to have that booked by February 26th. <laughs> <laughs> right, so basically, you have to give Disney five, four and a half months yep. advance notice yep. to take it, and it is the best discount. It's the it's the it's the steepest mm-hmm. discount of the you know it's five percent more than the other the other discounts. Oh, sir. But mm-hmm. yeah, but that okay, but okay, that tells me that they're going to either announce something or they're trying a plan B for those dates in case it doesn't work out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. All right, so we'll watch it and uh, keep seeing what happens there. Mm-hmm. Jim, speaking of hotels, uh, over at Pop Century and Art of Animation. Have you seen the uh, news about bus service to the studios and Epcot now uh, once per hour instead of ongoing with uh, with signs at the bus stop encouraging everyone to use the Skyliner? Jim, you said this was going to happen, and it has. Remember, the caveat here is that should the Skyliner line go down at any one time, they immediately divert back to the old uh, new bus every 10 minutes, 15 minutes. That's what Yeah, they'll just use bus service. Yeah, then. Yeah. But this sort of speaks volumes about at this point, after you know a couple of months of 
solid operation. Uh, you know, Disney is confident enough to go, okay, let's let's use this in this way and, yep. you know, see if we could adjust people's behavior. And I don't know if it's just an observation on my part or you know, if I'm biased or if it's, uh, if it's an actually a trend, but the number of people who have emailed me about staying at the Caribbean beach resort for their upcoming vacation and people asking for information about it, mm-hmm. you know, like where to stay and how the skyline works and things like that dramatically increased over years past. And it, it, this comes on the heels of me saying for years mm-hmm. that Caribbean beach is the, is the one hotel that you shouldn't stay at in Walt Disney world because the guest satisfaction numbers were so low, but apparently the Skyliner has piqued so much interest in people for a moderately priced resort on the Skyliner line that they're willing to give Caribbean Beach at least a shot mm-hmm. in terms of booking their vacation. So Disney's got to like that, right? Oh, God, yeah. You know, to have something that sat in the inventory since 88 and suddenly become the hot new hotel, what's not to love there? Yeah, they got to be super, super happy with that. So that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Speaking of uh, Epcot, Jim, uh, our friends over at WDWMagic.com have noted that with all of the construction going on, in Future World, especially the stuff going on in Interventions West, a number of character meet and greets have been moved around. So I guess we could call this instead of the uh, the twelve tribes of Israel wandering <laughs> around, this is the uh, the six characters, six character groupings. So Mickey Mouse is now uh, was wandering the desert and is now in the queue area of the Disney Pixar Short Film Festival. To be fair, which they, is they, really a really interesting place. I mean, they've got the space for it over there. They do, they do, and there's a certain method to Disney's madness here. Remember that on the other side of the 50th anniversary, we're getting a large-scale redo of the Imagination Pavilion, and understand that a lot of ideas are being floated. And so the notion of okay, let's let's put Mickey over there and see what sort of reaction he gets. And it's one of the pavilions in Future World that needs as much help as it can get. So putting the big draw over there is no 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 it's a brilliant temporary move but more to the the effect that just sort of like okay if we put an a-list character in here what happens anticipate you're going to see a lot of folks with clipboards or a lot of folks with tablets yeah counting right one two yeah counting the number of people that come in there that'll be a no, no word. So I guess they're not uh, they're not doing fast pass for those things anymore because there's no way to do fast pass for no. those. And especially you know, during. Well, first, of all, I think the big the big thing here is because the fact that the characters are so distributed, the lines will be much smaller. That's the other thing that that's frankly fascinating about this plan is this you know sort of scattering them to the four winds and seeing what happens. Speaking of character based stuff. We had the announcement of that DuckTales game, which is replacing the, what, we had? Phineas and Ferb. Phineas yeah. and Ferb. And, you know, same thing. You know, just using the Disney characters yet again to push people, to distribute people that much more evenly around the park. Yeah, I'm interested to, interested to see how they change the game mechanics from Agent P's World Showcase Adventure mm-hmm. for the new DuckTales thing. And I'm also surprised that DuckTales is still a thing, but uh, apparently it's super popular. I started watching some of the... Uh, some of the series on Disney Plus recently, so. Oh, uh, no, no, it's, so th- it's a great show, but again, sadly, in the new Netflix business model, this third season that's coming up is the last. So by the Netflix business model, you mean the fact that Netflix rarely runs a series beyond three years because that's when the, I guess, the, the contracts typically start getting more expensive for production and for actors and things like that? Actually, I want to say Variety had this fascinating story about how what Netflix has discovered is that audiences typically build in season one and season two. And for some reason, starting at season three, they start to fall off. 
So, you know, from a business model, the very thing you're talking about, it's at the time when the actors get that much more expensive, the, the time when production, likewise, because you have to you feel like you have to get that much more ambitious to hang on to your audience. It's everyone's second contract, right? Yeah. So it's just sort of like, yeah, three and out, which is a shame because it, it is a, a great take on, you know, the old Disney afternoon show, a fun reboot. And it's sort of in the tradition of the Phineas and Ferb game. I want to say that the Phineas and Ferb game arrived at Epcot just as that show was sunsetting as well. Was ending, yeah. They need to hit a, a uh, get a game on a, an up-and-coming series. Mm-hmm. We'll see what happens. Maybe there'll be the uh, Lizzie McGuire meets, uh, meets Epcot. Oh, good. Speaking we're, of which... So we're still on season one. Season one. Go ahead. Speaking of which, I don't know if you saw the news just today. They shot two episodes of the Lizzie McGuire reboot and stop production and actually let the sh- the showrunner from the original series, Terry Minsky, go. Really? Yep. I mean, that news literally broke this morning. No. What happened there? Evidently, they got two episodes in the can and it was just sort of like, I don't know if this is going to work. Or at least taking this direction with the material. So Terry has agreed to step away. They're going to take a break, find a new showrunner, bring in some new writers. Because on paper, this would seem to be an idea that can't miss. But the whole notion of revisiting this character when she's 30 years old while still keeping her 13-year-old animated self, evidently that's a harder needle to thread than people had originally expected. Oh, good news. Good news to uh, to hear that the show is uh, continuing. Mm Mm-hmm. All right, Jim, over at Epcot, we've got some uh, dining updates. So the Regal Eagle Smokehouse mm-hmm. at the American Pavilion has released its menu. Also, Jim, Sam the Eagle from the Muppets is the mascot. This was uh, this was announced last week. Jim, why uh, why Sam the Eagle? Well, one might ask, you know, why is Ratatouille in France? Or why is Mary Poppins going into the UK? Or as we talked about on the last show, why is a meet and greet for Rhea and the Last Dragon going to be added to China? You know, it's... It's all about bringing the characters to Epcot, Glenn. And okay, yeah, I get that. But why Why this Muppet character? I mean, the Muppets don't have a TV series. There's mm-hmm. no movie in production. Mm-hmm. They own the Muppets, of course, but why Sam the Eagle? Why the United States? Is it, it, why the United States Pavilion? Is it because we named this thing Regal Eagle? We needed an IP character that was an eagle? A quick look at the, uh, the the Disney Wikipedia page for characters <laughs> it's, says it's, the only eagle we've got is Sam. Yeah, <laughs> well, you're not entirely wrong, but there was that very well-received series of commercials with the Muppets over the holiday season for at and I'm, I'm blanking the uh, the technology. That, uh, <laughs> how successful can the commercial be, Len, when I remember yeah, the right. Muppets Ooh. in it, but I can't remember the product. On the other hand, over the holiday season, great moments in history with the Muppets came back at the Magic Kingdom, got great notes. Uh, there is, in fact, a Muppet TV series coming to uh, – in fact, it was uh, – listed as part of the trailer for 2020 for Disney Plus. So there is a Muppet resurgence happening. It's one of those things where they're just going to keep trying the Muppets till till they find something that I you're not wrong. <laughs> you're yeah. Really not I, wrong. I, I, and I'm fine with that. I mean I I think that the Muppet characters in the right spots mm-hmm. can be endearing and charming for for the Disney parks. So my note on the menu though the the menu for Regal Eagle Smokehouse the American platter is choose three meats. Mm-hmm. Garlic toast and one side. I believe the side is Lipitor that you can pick. <laughs> because, because Jim, the meats are Memphis dry rub pork ribs, mm-hmm. Kansas City smoked half chicken, a barbecue burger, a sliced Texas beef brisket sandwich, 
North Carolina chopped smoked pork or a South Carolina smoked sausage. Somehow, this menu also includes a power greens salad and, and a barbecue <laughs> well, we were just talking. We were just talking about lip service, Len. <laughs> you know, <it's> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and a barbecue jackfruit burger. I've actually had barbecue jackfruit uh, before. So it's plant-based burger on garlic toast topped with barbecue jackfruit served with your choice of side. I, 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 don't, I don't know what the side would be for that. but And the power green salad, uh, least expensive thing on the menu. Mm-hmm. It actually sounds delicious. Yeah, it comes with a chilled pulled chicken. I guess you can have that as a side if you want to go mm-hmm. vegan or vegetarian on it because everything else looks looks vegan on it. So three meats, one side, uh, which should be your cholesterol lowering drug for that day. Now, correct me if I'm toast. wrong. Was the defibrillator that they used to use oh, for the- Alfredo's? <laughs> <laughs> I think. I think you know how they they redesigned the outside of that area, the the seating area there. I actually think that they did it to make it easier for the EMT teams to, <laughs> to, to come in with the stretchers. <laughs> oh, okay. These doors need to be slightly wider because when we transport the body out, we're going to need a, a little bit more room for our hands as we go. I think that's what they they're thinking there. <laughs> Good Lord. Yeah. Jim, uh, speaking of uh, food, uh, Chicken Guy, uh, which is a collab between Guy Fieri and Planet Hollywood is expanding at Disney Springs, taking over the retail space of Planet Hollywood to provide more seating. What's behind the success of Chicken Guy? I'll say that I was there last weekend when it was still fairly busy. It was sort of like the last weekend Mm -hmm. of the winter holiday, and it was the week before Marathon Week, which was this past weekend. Mm -hmm. But there were people standing in line outside, and on a fairly warm day, I might add, Mm -hmm. to get into Chicken Guy. What? What's behind the success of this place? If you you actually talk with the people at, at Disney Springs, and especially when you you take into consideration that how much of West Side is still construction site, Chicken Guy is is, is you're coming down out of the Orange parking garage, right? Yep, right there, right there. And let's face it, if you're about to launch it, if you're going to see a movie or you're about to launch into a retail adventure, it is the perfect position. So you've got to make hay while the sun shines. It's like, okay, yep. for some odd reason, this is this caught everybody's fancy. So people are only willing to stand in a line, especially at a place like Disney Springs for only so long before they then go off in search of the next quick service food option. Right. I think it helps that they are the only quick service uh, option that you can see yep. from that particular part of mm-hmm. Disney Springs. I think the other thing that helps them is the fact that there's always a little bit of a line mm-hmm. Makes people curious about what's going on inside. There's such a thing as a good line. Yeah, it's it's fascinating to look at. But on the other hand, I can't tell you the, the number of times I've gotten in line at a Walt Disney World vacation and accidentally found myself in a bathroom. Right. <laughs> I thought this was Carousel of Progress. You're going to like, no. Where no, no. was I? Uh, I think I, w- I was there like, not New Year's Eve. I think it was there like December 29th mm-hmm. in, I want to say the studios. Mm-hmm. And there was a line that was that went out so far, that I, and I, I naturally got in the line. Mm-hmm. Be, oh, it was over by um, ABC Commissary, where it, where it sort of comes out to the front of the Chinese theater. So there's a line that was to, to actually get into the ABC Commissary, mm-hmm. or so I thought. And the line was actually to go to the bathrooms. Yeah. I'm like, oh, I, I completely right. And luckily, a cast member came up and said, this is the line for the bathrooms. Mm-hmm. If you want the other line, go there. So, like, yeah, very strange. Very, very strange. Very strange. Speaking of strange, Jim, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, you're going to tell us about an Epcot pavilion, space-themed pavilion, that was never built. We'll do that right after the break, folks. (laughs) 
So our friend Joseph M sent us an email about some new documents that uh, were found on the website DisneyDocs.net. And this is an archival website that serves up documents related to future technology and Disney theme parks and also the 1964 World's Fair. But anyway, one of these documents, Jim, is a brochure, I guess, produced by Disney for a never-built space pavilion? Yeah. It was actually the presentation booklet for when Disney in March of 96 was trying to line up a sponsor for this attraction. And this is one of these bizarre things where Disney history keeps folding in on itself. You know, how much of what they were planning on building in 96 actually makes use of the original space pavilion that John DeCure and, and Ray Bradbury were trying to do. And from the day Disneyland opened, you had the option of adventures that took you to space, whether it was the Space Station X-1, that walk-in attraction that was eventually renamed right. uh, Satellite View of Earth, where you're, you're standing looking at a giant diorama of the United States. And what was fun about it was that as the supposedly the Earth revolved, America would slide into darkness and suddenly all these lights would come on and you could see New York City and L.A. and all that. And and then, you know, a rocket to the moon, you know, which mm-hmm. became Mission Mars back in the day. And, of course, things like Astrojets and Space Mountain. So Disney has always been in the space business, at least when it comes to its theme parks. But by the mid-'70s, here's Epcot, right, you know, rising up through development And so, of course, if we're going by the original 1976 plan for Epcot, Mm -hmm. you know, World Showcase was actually broken down. There was one half the park. I want to say this was the, uh, was dedicated to the biosciences. So that's oceanography, food, agriculture, and health. And the other one was based on advances that, that mankind had made through technology. So we had energy, transportation, and space. So no, so no communication, no spaceship. No, no, spaceship no imagination. You know, just, I mean, you know, no imagination. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And in fact, what's kind of interesting is that I pulled out my copy of the 1977 annual report for Walt Disney Productions, and they highlight as part of this particular annual report, master plan number five for Epcot. And it's got just enough interesting variations on the layout that it, it, it's worth noting for a sec. So again, if you think of clock face, six o'clock position, of course, is Spaceship Earth. Okay, and that, that's what we have today. That's what we have today. But if we move to the seven o'clock position, this is where the Life and uh, Health Pavilion was going to go. And So that would have been where uh, Universe of Energy was. Right. And then nine o'clock position is the land. So basically they swapped Instead of being in the three o'clock, that's at the nine o'clock. Right. Ten o'clock position is transportation, and of course, that's what World of World Ocean of Motion, eventually right. became. Twelve noon is right at the edge of World Showcase Lagoon. Is the American Adventure, which is described in this annual report as the gateway to World Showcase, and on the future world side of of World Showcase, not on the other side. Right. It's the, yeah, the gateway, right, too. Okay. Okay. Two o'clock position, we've got the Space Pavilion, where Imagination went. Imagination is. Uh, right. Three o'clock is the Seas Pavilion. Okay. And that's that's like at the four o'clock or five o'clock position now. Yeah. And what's kind of interesting is the four o'clock position is the Energy Pavilion. And remember, when we did that show about energy, we talked right. about one of the things that really concerned Exxon, especially because of they were going to have those solar panels on the roof, that it had to be positioned in such a way to you know make the maximum of the fl- exposure to the Florida sun. 
Oh, right. So that's what, okay. So once they decided to move the energy pavilion, mm-hmm. that's how everything else gets, kind of gets rotated. There you go. Okay. So anyway, oh. space pavilion sitting with the Im- imagination pavilion, you know, would eventually be built. Uh, according to the 77 annual report, this attraction was supposed to feature a huge interstellar space vehicle that would transport passengers to the outer frontier of the universe, highlighting man's effort to reach out for the stars around him. And with the idea of it going from the early pioneers who looked up and wondered to modern day space travelers and their triumphs to the challenge of future space technologies and exploration. Okay. And they actually have, as part of this annual report, a photo of John DeCure and, again, you know, the noted writer uh, Ray Bradbury looking at the model for the central attraction. And, and Len, you know, what, what's kind of intriguing about this is it's kind of the early, early, early iteration of Soaring. Soren, exactly, that's exactly what I thought it was when I looked at it. Yeah, I mean, it just <laughs> you have your your rounded screen, you have right. a huge a, Omnimax screen, right? Right, and you have yeah. you know your ride system, which was the giant chunk of an audience, but it was on a gimbal. So the idea was that right. you, so it's they're they're tiered, right? They're in they're in mm-hmm. they're in three or four levels, yep. mm-hmm. and they're standing, right? They're standing in this iteration. Yeah. You know, and again, in the soaring tradition that once the show begins, the ride platform lifts up on this gimbal and then begins to move in concert with the with the ride footage. So you, right, you get right, that right. feeling of okay, you know, I'm 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 moving through space and I think there's just enough ascent, you know, because they tilt you forward, you have just enough a feeling of weightlessness that it, it sells the idea of being in space. And this particular iteration of the space billion stayed a go project as as late as November of 1978. That it was only on October 2nd of 1978 that Card Walker came out and said, okay, we are officially going forward with Epcot and it will open on October 1st, 1982. But according to the 78 annual report, it's basically the exact same language. You know, passengers in this huge interstellar space vehicle be transported to the edge of the universe to uh, on a journey that highlights our efforts to reach the stars. But what ends up happening is that what Disney honestly hadn't anticipated was the collapse of the aerospace industry in the mid-1970s. Disney did, did, and to this day, doesn't like making things with its own money. So, (laughs) you know, so here's Jack Lindquist, you know, the first president of Disneyland, but at this point he's the front man for Epcot. He's meeting with heads of state. He's meeting with, you know, the heads of major industry people. Yeah, that's exactly. And looking for money to build these pavilions. And what ended up happening is poor Jack is going out and and meeting with the Lockheeds of the world. And they're like, you understand that Apollo canceled the last, excuse me, NASA canceled the last three Apollo missions, and the Vietnam War is winding down. You know, there's not as much money in aerospace as there once was. So, right, it was it was not a good good decade for the uh, for the aerospace or uh, military yeah. industries. The seventies were not great to them, right? Because not only that, but you had the Arab oil embargo too in the seventies, right, which drove up the cost of everything. Yeah, so it's just not not a good time to go hat in hand to these folks looking. You know, I mean, when right. you're laying off thousands of people. You know, it's sort of like when we talked about the Kodak update that the folks in Rochester, New York, were like, "Look, I know it says in our contract we're supposed to pay to redo the the Journey into Imagination Pavilion, but we're laying off thousands of people. I can't give you millions of dollars to do. Yeah, it's fi- a contract, not a suicide pact. Yeah, right? that's exactly yeah. so. Disney had the exact same issue with the Seas Pavilion, uh, with the mm-hmm. Life and Health Pavilion that that 
you know, they just kept going to industries that weren't having, you know, had no free cash at that point. So these pavilions get pushed to phase two at Epcot. And then, of course, that after Epcot opens in October of 82, by October, you know, 1983, the park isn't meeting attendance projections, which brings in the green mailers, and which is why September 84, Michael Eisner comes through the door. And yep. Michael Eisner, you know, it's like, especially with Epcot, he knew his, you know, the, the priority one was to make that place more entertaining. That's why he rejected out of hand John DeCure and Ray Bradbury's take on the Space Pavilion because it was, what is the line from Contact that, that, you know, they should have sent a poet? Right. Michael wasn't that big a fan of poetry. He wanted thrills. He wanted action. Which is why January 14th, 1990, he announces the Disney Decade, which is supposed to be this 10-year expansion plan that will transform the Disney parks. Sadly, most of the stuff that was planned for this got canceled after Euro Disney opened in April of 92 and immediately had financial problems of its own. But one of the highlights of the Disney Decade was, and I'm quoting directly here from the press release, Len, Journeys into Space, the, and they describe it as the long-planned future world attraction, will present visitors with the ultimate thrill ride, space travel. New systems and special effects will be used to give guests an outer space experience without ever leaving terra firma. Now, mind you, what's going on during this same period is that GE, which had been the sponsor of the Horizons Pavilion, they were coming up on their 10-year renewal of the pavilion. It opened October 1st, 1983, and they basically indicated to Disney that, you know, we're not renewing. You know, you're, you're going to have to do this on your own. And now here's Disney, knowing that's going on, but walking around looking for a sponsor for Journeys into Space, which borrowed the template from Wonders of Lifeline in that inside of the pavilion, uh, there were supposed to be multiple, it, you know, experiences that, that folks could have, you know, two and three different rides and shows. Though I have to tell you what I love about this whole story is how much of Disney history folds in on itself. The idea is that you, you had to journey up to this space station that was orbiting Earth. It started off, you you literally stood around this fake uh, campfire and they projected stars around you. But you then boarded a special space elevator that, that Wait, took why, you. Why are you, why are you, by a, why are you under a campfire? Because of the stars? Yes. The, the, well, the idea is that you're supposed to, primitive man looked at the stars and it looked up to Ah, uh, got it, got it, got it. Okay, okay. Okay. So, but here's the thing, that, that if you, you remember how you're supposed to get, gain access to Space 220, you, you ride the space oh, elevator. The, uh, the new restaurant. Yeah, the uh, the space hydrolators, as it were. There we go. So here's the here's the, the attraction they originally invented for. So, um, oh. so you go up, you arrive at the space station, which what Disney was going to do to convince you that you were out in space is they were going to be effectively windows, which were actually digital projections in the floor, ceiling, and walls that were... Oh, again, Space space 220. Right. And and that's it exactly. And they were supposed to move in concert to give you the sense that you're, you're orbiting. Is, did so you look at space, you could look at Earth, you know, as it, it traveled as it should between the windows. Sure. But the big attraction here was supposed to be the spacewalk attraction, where they were going to take a KUKA arm... You know, and again, the first time, you know, the the, the Kugaram technology would have come into Disney parks, and you you were supposed to be able to sit in a chair that you could control. And and again, I want to stress here, not 
control ridiculously, but control with a joystick. And you'd go for a spacewalk outside of the station. And you could, Ooh. if you wanted, you could watch the stars go by. Or if you want, you could turn the arm in toward the station and actually view other aspects of the station, the cruise quarters or the, you know, hydroponics or that sort of thing. And, it, and just a, a, a five minute long experience. And on the other side, it's on an elevated track. And, you know, you then would you know, return to the space station. But wonderful idea. But Disney wasn't able to find a corporation that was willing to uh, to underwrite this cost. And so. Yeah. And especially with uh, with technology. I mean, that stuff has to, they know people, uh, that stuff has to change every couple of years. Oh, no, no, that, that, that's it. Exactly. So. GE steps away September 30th, 1993. Disney has to carry the full load of operating and maintaining Horizons all by itself. And by fall of 1995, they've just decided this this is an untenable situation. We need a corporate sponsor. Let's put together a new pitch for this uh, for the space pavilion, uh, you know, to, you know, and, and but we're going to do it inside of Horizons. And so a team of Imagineers go away. And this is where the presentation book that just showed up at Disney Documents showed up. And ah, okay, okay. all right, this is all about spending as little money on development as possible. So it's just they literally just pivoted and, for example, rated the files that, you know, for the, the John DeCure Ray Bradbury take, you know, particularly the ride mechanism, the, the giant audience, you know, slab on a gimbal. Then it was a question of, okay, so how do we, for example, how do we turn the Horizons building into something different? And the way they described what they're going to do there is they extend the walls of the Horizon so that when they're done, the, the building is now shaped like a pyramid. Which, of course, is, you know, something that, you know, over history man is associated with, you know, astrological studies and, and that sort of thing. They were going to try to keep as much of the Horizons ride system in place. So okay. the pre-show basically was you boarding that old Horizons passenger car, you know, the four people seated side by side facing in one direction. And then you went through a series of show scenes that, that told a story, uh, basically, you know, a man's, you know, love of space. So act one was... Uh, what we imagined about space uh, using our minds. So, okay, know, so like the moon made of uh, cheese thing. I mean, which is astrological joke, science yeah. and that sort of thing. Uh, sure. Act two was what we saw using uh, telescopes and, and telescope. Okay. Uh, and then act three was w what we experienced once we finally went into the space aboard a rocket. And I don't entirely understand this part of the presentation because it's very, very, very heavy on 1950s sci-fi films where it's <laughs> lots of guys in rubber suits threatening women who are falling out of their gowns. <laughs> I mean, it, it could be it could be stuff that people were familiar with, right? So to give them a, uh, a touch point. I, okay, I, I get that. And, and Act 4 is what we learned when we reached out into space uh, thanks to long-range probes like, like Voyager and Hubble. And oh, okay. okay, so now we get off of uh, the old Horizons, Horizons ride system. Well, let me pause you there, Jim. So if this was World of Motion, mm -hmm. this would be the chance where we got off the ride system and had the chance to buy our own place on a rocket ship. So maybe Elon Musk is selling stuff oh. or Jeff Bezos is selling stuff there. But okay, go ahead. No, That's no, not no, what happened. Go ahead. No, no, but, uh, no I love that idea. Um, hey, I'm just not – Disney knows where to send the checks. There we go. I'm just saying. There we go. Okay, so – you, you get off it, but at this point, you now find yourself queuing up 
for a digital imaging processing center. They, 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 at this point in the presentation book, they're, they're not sure if it's going to be based at, at NASA or you know, they're pretending that this is a facility at the Jet Propulsion Lab in Pasadena. But you know what eventually happens is that as you're queuing up here, you board you yet another space elevator, you know, a mysterious capsule that takes you up to what's supposed to be a space station, but they are calling it the speculator. The speculator, okay, and the capsules. Okay, yeah. What this is is the exact thing that you described from the the original space elevator that that, that Ray Bradbury and John DeCure designed. So it's okay. A seating area of 150 people. You're standing up. And then once everybody's in place, it's a six minute long ride experience. And it actually starts off with a, a young boy looking into a mic microscope. In fact, you get to see his eye looking down at you. And the, the whole notion is that, well, what is space? And, you know, that they do that kind of powers of 10 thing where, you know, you pull back from right. Earth and, you know, that suddenly you're, you're in and get the outermost edge of our solar system and then the outermost edge of our galaxy. Yeah, it's like the it's like uh, in movies where they do, uh, they start off in space mm -hmm. showing the Earth and they zoom into someone's kitchen, yep. but in reverse. Yeah, and the climax of this is, you know, you sort of, you're, you're, you're sort of skipping around the universe and it. One point you're going to the outermost edge of the universe and you you suddenly sort of come to a stop and it's like, oh dear Lord, we're at the event horizon of a black hole. They're trying to make use of think the assets that Disney already has. And there's that amazing stuff that the company did for 1979's The Black Hole. Oh, uh, okay, okay. Okay. And boy, talk about putting IP in Epcot, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> and what's lovely about how they bookended at this. Is that remember we started off with an eye looking at us in you know a microscope and the the last image of you know before we return to base so to speak is of a galaxy that eventually coalesces in such a way that's like wow that looks just like a human eye oh it bookends yeah nice. so I love the sketches mm -hmm. of what the ride mechanism looked like so for to me mm -hmm. imagine I'm looking at a computer monitor but from the side mm -hmm. like and the computer monitor can get can can tilt yep. Yep. Right, uh, forward and back, right mm -hmm. to for for eye adjustment. And imagine you're strapped to that, mm -hmm. to the face of the monitor, and you're looking out, so that Disney can move, the, tilt the monitor up and down. Apparently, a 25 degree angle. Yeah, which is that's a lot. They actually said that in the booklet, we're going to need to strap people in with safety belts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, but again, huh. you know, the notion of trying to make this as thrilling as possible, because again, remember that that's what Michael Eisner wants. He wants thrills. But at the same time, there's a, a bit of humor to this thing that there's at one point you, you spend a, about a minute zooming through. Remember on the original Horizons, they'd show those giant rotating space stations with sort of yeah. cities, you know, embedded in the side. And you have a human host that joins you with a rocket pack for a few months. And then he apologizes like, I'm sorry, I, I have to, you know, my, I promised my family I'd take them to, you know, space Disneyland. And so, <laughs> of course, and, you know, you get the, the, you know, the happiest place off Earth. And again, the reason this presentation book exists at all is because they were going to, they hand carry it to all sorts of corporations. You know, they're looking for somebody who's willing to, you know, come forward and sponsor, you know, this attraction. And in the end, that just didn't happen. You know, but what Disney was, was able to do was uh, cut a deal with Compact. Compact, the uh, computer maker. Yep. Compact Computer okay. Corporation. And so January 9th, 1999. Horizon closes for good. Oh. April of 2000, Compaq and Disney announced that they are partnering to build the thrill ride of the future, 
Mission Space. And okay. as we all know, that this $100 million attraction makes use of centrifuge technology. It opens uh, August of 2003. Uh, however, Disney had kind of a, a, a thrill ride of its own uh, because in, I want to say, March of 2002... Compact Computer Corporation got bought by Hewlett Packard. And right. for a moment, Disney was terrified, like, oh, God, we have new corporate masters for this attraction, and we're going to have to make these folks happy. And it turned out yeah. Hewlett Packard could not have been happier to be in business with Disney. In fact, October of 2003, and remember, you know, the mission space opened in, in August of 2003, and they're like, oh, you know, we love working with Disney. Let's do a, a 10-year alliance. And that, that went so well that quietly in 2013, they renewed this alliance. And one of the reasons they renewed this alliance was that in October of 2012, Disney bought Lucasfilm for $4,500,000. During this period, we saw Mission Space uh, do its its Earth mission, the the stable, uh, rather than using the centrifuge technology, there's the one where they just do the sort of the fly around of Earth yep. that has made that so much easier. But what Hewlett Packard and Disney were working on in the interim was the technology that powers the, the Millennium Falcon uh, Smuggler's Run. Ooh. So I knew that they were. I knew that Nvidia was doing the graphics, but uh, HP is doing the technology. The, other the technology actual game? technology. Oh, we'll have to talk about that. That we will. But for years, Disney tried to get Ray Bradbury's majestic, poetic version of space up out of the ground, and in the right. end, you know, what we largely got was George Lucas's version <laughs> of space, which is involves a lot of explosion and crashing into things. So. Uh, <laughs> Maybe, maybe that's the thing. Crashes and explosions sell, but not when you're talking about space exploration. Maybe that's what we learned today, Jim. Okay. It makes me feel better about when Nancy and I piloted the Millennium Falcon and managed to hit every single spire in Black Spire Outpost. It was... It, it, there's a reason why we're not controlling the Voyager spacecraft. This, that's what I'm saying. This is a good thing. This is a good thing. All right, folks. If you want to see this uh, documentation uh, for yourselves, it's over at Disney Docs, D-O-C-S, dot net. And uh, thanks again to our friend Joseph M. for, uh, for sending this in. That's going to do it for the Disney Dish show today. Please head on over to DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes. On next week's show, we're going to review Epcot's new films, Canada Far and Wide, The Land's Awesome Planet, and the Beauty and the Beast sing-along at France. We are produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who's guest conducting the Columbus Symphony Orchestra's Russian Winter Festival music show on January 24th in beautiful downtown Columbus, Ohio. He'll also be mixing vodka martinis before the show and during intermission. Talk about a one-man band. Please go on to iTunes and Raider Show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We'll see you on the next show.